Hello, hello everyone. I am Lucas Prado and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Hope you're ready right now and let's all dive deeper into God's Word. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us, whether you're online or you're at a physical location, glad you're with us. And it's Thanksgiving weekend, so happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I hope the turkey, the ham, or whatever your tradition is, is great. For you Americans watching and you are confused, don't worry. Uh, your Thanksgiving is coming. We do it right on the right time. You do it in the wrong time. And of course, my personal bias is I love Thanksgiving now because that means I get to put Christmas trees up much sooner. Anyway, if you're watching this later, I hope your Thanksgiving was good also. Now, I know it's Thanksgiving weekend, but we are systematically walking through the book of Acts together. And so we're at this really brilliant, pivotal point in the book of Acts that actually is really exciting and would produce a lot of Thanksgiving and also is a little heavy. So uh, I hope you'll join me as we get going. Jesus, um, long before he was set up and murdered and crucified and rose from the dead, warned his followers that things would be amazing and things would also be difficult. This is what he said in Luke 12. When you're brought before uh, the synagogue or rulers or authorities, don't worry about how you'll defend yourself or what you even say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Well, <laughs> Jesus doesn't lie, and that's exactly what happened. Now, it didn't begin with a fight or a dispute or violence or a vote or some mob moment. It happened, actually, in a really amazing place that was actually full of thanksgiving. It happens in, in an encounter marked by mercy and healing compassion. So, let's begin where we did last week. We're in the city of Jerusalem. Now, a new character comes on the scene. There's a beggar sitting outside of the very world-famous Jewish temple. Now, his experience, like many of other, many others, millions before, millions after, is basically not that great. Nothing but the grind of nothingness. Day after day, humiliation and rejection, and I guarantee most people didn't look him in the eyes. Many did not acknowledge his presence. I guarantee almost no one thought he was valuable. Now, he's at God's temple, and he begged there, as we're going to find out, for years. He had seen, well, millions of people come and go to worship the true living God and meet him. So it's another normal day for him, and two more religious people walk by him, and he basically says, money, <laughs> can I have some money? Now, the strangers, unlike so many others, don't either A, ignore him, or B, give him some money because it's the right religious thing to do. They stop. They look down, and they look into his face. It's almost like I imagine uh, Peter and John looking into the deep, empty, hollow, dead-before-dead eyes, and suddenly Peter speaks. He says, oh, silver and gold I do not have, uh, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the hand, the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became Strong, he jumped to his feet, he began to walk, then he went into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the guy who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. So, can you first of all hear the guy's thoughts? I thought I would never walk. I thought I would never have dignity. 
I didn't think people really cared. I wasn't even sure God cared. I sit at God's house all the time, but does he hear me? See, my identity is based on beggar, crippled, dirty, lazy, unclean, worthless, garbage, untouchable. That is his existence in a few words. And and what's even more difficult is this. He's been crippled from birth. So in the Jewish understanding, if you're born with a, a deformity or if you're born with a disability, that is evidence that your parents sinned or actually, if it happens to you later, you sinned. In other words, the view was God had given you a physical disability as a sign of his displeasure and judgment on you and your family. So all these religious people walking by him would have gone, God's judgment, God's judgment, God's judgment, God's judgment. And suddenly this this guy is like full of life. He literally, in a few seconds, moves from darkness to light. He's spiritually, physically, emotionally uh, transformed. He's got dignity. He's got love. Desperation is met in in and through the name of Jesus from Nazareth. And I can imagine him saying, finally, what I have begged in front of my whole life, the gate called beautiful, that is now me. I can claim that gate as my own. I am beautiful. And I'm sure he began to dance like If there was ever a Thanksgiving passage, it's this. And I guarantee he's literally running and yelling. I can walk, I can walk, and I I can walk. He wasn't trying to curate some content to guard his reputation. He didn't give a rip what people thought about his, his reputation. This was just like epic. Now remember this, this is important. Whether you're a seeker, skeptic, brand new Christian, long term, miracles are always door opening events. So actually, the good news gets to be shared. The healer is more important even than the healing. So Peter turns to the crowd in shock, in amazement, in the middle of the temple, and he begins to preach. And his message is very similar to what we heard last week in the very first Christian sermon, full of bad news and full of good news. And he paints the picture and he points to the man and then he points to the crowd. And this is what he says in verse 15. You all, y'all, you killed the author of life. Wow, how not to start a sermon. But God raised Jesus from the dead. We're witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know is made strong. It is in Jesus' name and faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you could all now see. Now, my fellow Jews, my fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through the prophets, saying the Messiah would suffer. Repent, turn to God, that your sins might be wiped out, and that times of refreshing may come from God, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Now, like I shared last week, Jesus' coming and Jesus' death was God's plan all along to save us. Yes, the Romans and some Jewish leaders, and Peter says, and a lot of you got Jesus killed. Yes, some people said Jesus was guilty of treason because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Many religious Jewish leaders and even many in that crowd accused Jesus of blasphemy because he claimed he could forgive sins and he was equal to the Father. And Peter basically says, once again, you thought you were in charge, And they thought they were in charge, but this was God's plan all along, and we all got outplayed. This is how we get out of the mess we're in. We need to repent. We need to turn back to God. But let me slow down and point this out again. 
See, this is not spiritual anxiety. Something's wrong, and I know something's wrong, but I'm not sure what it is. Peter says, no, no, no. Repentance means I am guilty. I know I have done a wrong thing. It is personal responsibility. And Peter says, in the middle of the Jewish temple, to a very educated, powerful audience, and to all of us, repent. Admit it. I have sinned. I have assaulted God. I'm guilty. I need help. We all actually are involved in the death of Jesus because we've all sinned. And we need supernatural external healing, just like this man needed physically. Well, okay, this God moment happens, the extraordinary happens, the guy's running around, this is Thanksgiving 101, and then the crisis comes. And why would not everyone be happy for this? I mean, why would not everyone celebrate this guy getting healed? Well, God's extraordinary moves tend to threaten theology, tend to threaten status quo. God's new moves threaten the long-established. Actually, interestingly, God's new moves sometimes threaten the places where God moved a long time ago, and that move has now turned into institutionalism and tradition. The truth repeated time and time again is when God really moves, most people don't welcome Him. Most people are not excited. Most people don't want His work, His will, His love. So Peter and John, by the way, let's just pause here, have gone up to pray. Here's the setting. So you might not know this, but every day there was at least one time when all the Jewish people in Jerusalem, especially I think the men, would go and they would pray formally at the temple. Now, we see this in Acts 2.46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So thousands of Jesus followers, and almost all of them, if not all of them at this moment, are Jews, are going up for daily Jewish prayers with hundreds or thousands more who actually are not followers of Jesus. And now in this mixed crowd of those who think Jesus is the Messiah and those who don't think Jesus is the Messiah, heaven breaks out in the temple again. Peter preaches a really strong message, awe spreads, the crowd gets bigger, one or two or three hours pass, I don't know, and then we arrive at Acts 4. So the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Okay, suddenly the police show up. <laughs> and they show up with a group called the Sadducees. Okay, let me unpack this for some of you who might not know about them. The Sadducees were a mix of priests and Aristo uh, the aristocracy. Basically, they had ruled for a very long time. They were a very small minority of Jews. They tended to be quite wealthy, actually, and they were not in the mainstream of Judaism at all for a few reasons. Number one, they did not believe in physical resurrection at all. Number two, they only believed in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They said those are the only five books that are inspired. The rest of the Old Testament is not inspired. They said, we're already living in the Messianic age, and only priests should deal with religious matters. Do you see the coming conflict? So the Sadducees show up in verse 2. They are greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, which they don't believe in. They seized Peter and John because it was evening. They put them in jail till the next day. Many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to around five. Thousand. Okay, so early Christians, we're talking within the first two weeks, are preaching Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead. 
They're healing in His name. They're proclaiming Him as the only way to the Father. They're implying that He's God in flesh. They are saying He's the only one that can establish contact between God and humanity, and He's the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And then they start seeing the healing of this man proves that Jesus is risen because by Jesus' name, Jesus is now healing through His followers. In other words, it's like positive possession. God's living in and among His people, not in the temple. So many people were coming and believing despite the leaders of the day trying to stop God's very move through His people in God's own house. You you see the irony of this, right? In the temple. Now it says 5,000 men believed. This doesn't include women and children. So at this moment, the Christian movement has grown to over 10,000 people like in days. Now, if you want to see a really cool connection, it's this. Jesus uh, fed the 5,000 and now 5,000 believe. In other words, the physical food has now become the spiritual food and the movement has begun. So within two chapters, it's grown from 150 to 3,000 to 10,000 or more. So Peter and John are now in jail for healing a guy in Jesus' name, by the way. And now they have to face the same organization or legislative body that Jesus faced that actually got him killed. And it's called the Sanhedrin. Okay, some of you know about it, some of you don't. The Sanhedrin was the most important Jewish institution that existed 2,000 years ago. It was made up of the high priest and a lot of his family, the priest class, and the scholars. So they are the greatest minds in Jewish law, Jewish faith, and Jewish history. And interestingly, if you read some history, the Romans had given them, the Sanhedrin that is, authority over every single Jew on earth. So if you were a Jew living in Alexandria and Egypt, or you were a Jew living in Rome, or you lived in Cyprus, this body had authority over you even more than the Romans did. So I've always explained it like this. For Canadians, it's like our parliament. If you're American uh, or from another place, it's sort of like the Congress or the Senate. And it's mixed at the same time with the Supreme Court, and it's mixed with the Vatican. So it's like the Jewish version of the Vatican, if that even makes sense, with all these other things. So they spend a night in jail to basically get sobered up religiously, and it doesn't work. And then it says in verse 5 these words, The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Okay, this is when the show gets really wild and gets really complicated. Rulers, temple, temple officials, Sadducees. Then you've got elders. Well, who are elders? Well, elders are like the heads of the significant families of the Jewish community. If you come from a British history, they almost feel like lords and ladies, like they're aristocracy, okay? And then, or landed gentry, maybe is even a better way of saying it. And then you've got the teachers of the law, different group, the theologians and the pastors who worked with the everyday people, and they're called Pharisees. And the Pharisees could not stand the Sadducees. The Pharisees accepted the whole Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, not just the five, first five books. They absolutely believed in the resurrection of the dead. They were the most influential movement to the average Jewish person back then. They were all waiting for the Messiah to come. They rejected the idea that we are already living in the time of the Messiah. And so they can't stand the other side of the court. But we all know this as humans. An enemy of my enemy makes you my friend. Or a common enemy makes strange bedfellows. So that's what's happening here. And then it even gets more complicated. Verse 6, 
Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and others in the high priest family. Okay, well, this list really matters. Annas was the high priest from 6 to 14 AD, and then the Romans removed him from power and gave it to his family. So his son-in-law, Caiaphas, becomes the high priest from 18 to 36 AD. By the way, the reason why the Pharisees couldn't stand these guys is because notice the Romans are appointing God's priests, not God. Okay, both Annas and Caiaphas are centrally involved in the trials of Jesus and help get Jesus killed. So you've got the best lawyers and you've got the best politicians and the best theologians who, by the way, this group got Jesus killed just a few months ago. This is tense. They all can't stand each other, but when you face a common enemy, you become friends, sort of, to get a job done. So verse 7, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or name did you do this thing? In other words, if this is a helpful image, we use it around here all the time, we're not denying the miracle happened. The question is, what is the source of the miracle? If you're a lamp, what did you plug into? What power source? Where's the electricity coming from? Whose who's spiritual credit card are you using? Again, we're not disputing the miracle happened. We think the source of the miracle is evil, false, and dangerous. And basically, they're thinking, we've had this demonic circus before with Jesus, and we got him taken out. So again, their question would hang in the air, just like cigarette smoke, just wouldn't go away. But amazingly, in that very environment, in that air, suddenly the Holy Spirit once again fills that temple ground like He used to. The comforter, the counselor, the advocate, the spirit of truth and life, the intercessor, the greatest witness speaks now through Peter and John. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to the Sanhedrin, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, <laughs> you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus, who is the Messiah from Nazareth, whom you crucified, and God, Elohim, Yahweh, the great I Am, God of Moses, raised him from the dead, that this man stands healed. Peter looked right at Caiaphas, right at Annas, and all the others, the ones that handed Jesus over to Pilate to be killed, and said, you did this. And, and by the way, if you have read this, maybe you haven't, there's an interesting conversation between Pilate and Jesus. And Jesus actually talks about Caiaphas personally. It's found in John 19, 11. Jesus answered to Pilate, you have no power over me. You, have no, you would not have power over me if it was not given from above. In other words, you're not in charge, Rome. Therefore, the one who's handed me over to you is greater or guilty of the greater sin. In other words, Peter stands up, and can you imagine this, in this very distinguished place, he says, you and you and you and you and you, you killed Jesus from Nazareth. I myself denied him just out those doors, but just so you know, God the Father, who this whole temple is dedicated to, has raised Jesus from the dead, and this healing proves Jesus has risen from the dead, because when we use the name of Jesus of Nazareth, it worked. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, this cripple and beggar would not, could not, would have never been healed. Uh, and then Peter <laughs> throws kerosene on the fire. He literally lobs a grenade a religious grenade, and he, he just like, he kicks the door down. And again, sitting in 2023, most of us not having Jewish heritage, 
we don't understand the power, the insult of what he says next in verse 11. He says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Okay, this is like, there, there is no gray here. To an Orthodox Jew hearing that then or today, this is massive scandal, jaw-dropping. He quotes Psalm 118, and he claims that Jesus from Nazareth, not Israel, is the capstone, and Jesus, not Israel, is the cornerstone, and Jesus is the true foundation of the whole house of the Jewish faith, and you who represent the Jewish faith rejected the one who actually is the center of everything we belong to. And this is actually the verse fully that he quotes. It's, it's in Psalm 118.22. The stone the builders rejected has become the, uh, the cornerstone. God has done this thing. It is marvelous in our, in our eyes. So he basically says, you builders, <laughs> you rulers of the Jewish people, you did not accept, you did not you would not bow your knee to Jesus and acknowledge Him as Messiah. You Sadducees, you're not living in the Messianic age. You're false teachers. You reject uh, resurrection and you're too tied to the Romans. You Pharisees, you've missed the one you're looking for. You looked at Jesus and said He can't be the foundation of our people, but no matter, God did this and it was God's plan all along. You think as a Sanhedrin you have the last say? No. You think that you know and you worship the true living God in this temple? Not anymore. You have missed the greatest move of our God, the one you rejected a few weeks ago, the one that you got executed a few weeks ago. From Him and Him alone comes salvation and shalom. Jesus from Nazareth is the Savior of the world. And then Peter utters words that have been so life-giving and so offensive for 2,000 years. Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in nobody else. There is no other name under heaven given to the Jews. No, all people by which we must be saved. These pastors, these theologians, these scholars knew the Old Testament, the prophets. They knew that God himself, the God of Israel, was the only one called Savior. But now Peter claims and proclaims that's Jesus' role. He's the only one that has dealt with our sin because He's the only one without sin. He's the only one that has overcome death because He's the only one who came back from death. He's the only one that has the power, the ability, the holiness, and love to deal with our rescue. He's overcome all of our enemies, sin, worldliness, and the demonic, and our selfish inclinations. The good news is found in Jesus alone, and not just for Jews, all people, all backgrounds. There is only one way to heaven. Jesus from Nazareth. You leaders must bow to him. It is by his name we healed, and this is proof that Jesus is raised to life. Well, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, ordinary, when we read that in English, uh, doesn't have the, the insult that's meant here. Ordinary can mean illiterate, uneducated, not theologically trained, you don't have degrees, you're not an expert to speak. You're an amateur, not a professional, but unqualified is maybe a good word, but it's deeper than that. Because actually the word ordinary is where we get our English word idiot from. So basically, <laughs> you're not only unschooled and you don't have the right degrees, and who are you to speak to us? We're ex we all got PhDs and you don't, but actually you're just idiots. 
You got the, you're from the wrong side of the tracks, by the way, with the wrong accent. Really? Can you imagine what the leaders are thinking? Are you joking me with this? We bumped off Jesus and we thought all this would end, but now, not just this, but thousands are following him. And Jesus, of course, was not like anything they had dealt with. And now they're like, and these two are starting to act just like him again. And then there's that guy standing there healed. And the healed man is in a long line of people who also got healed. So what do we do? Well, verse 14, since they could see the man had been healed standing there, there was nothing they could say. They ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign. We cannot deny it. I mean, Peter and John basically have become heroes. They've broken no laws by healing, by, by the way, a 40-year-old man. That guy's been lame for four decades. And yet, the religious body that had just condemned and executed Jesus now has to face two others claiming that he's alive and empowering them to do this again. Verse 18, they call them in again and command them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Peter and John say, well, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? Uh, you be the judges, because that's what you think you are, references. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Since we're in God's very presence, this is what Peter's saying, should we obey God or you? Oh, we, we know that you think as a human counsel, you're ordained by God and you alone speak for God. We know that you think you're the voice of God or you know the voice of God. And that might have been true in your history, but it's not true anymore. Why? Because you actually have rejected the God that you think you know, and you've rejected his Messiah, the King of the Jews, the one seated at the right hand of the Father. He's God in flesh. Jesus is the ultimate expression of our faith. He's the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. We will not, we cannot help ourselves. We have seen, we have heard, we have experienced, we are filled with the Holy Spirit who points us to Jesus and gives us the power Jesus had. Well, after further threats, they let them go, and they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. And the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And they put that in there because remember, he sat basically probably for 30 plus years in that spot. So everyone knew him. And now this has changed. Okay, we're going to pause there. And we'll pick this up uh, next week. But let me walk through the implications. Number one, Peter and John are pretty courageous. And some of us might make the mistake to think they were courageous because of their background. I mean, Peter's a pretty, he seems like a pretty intense guy, fisherman, probably well-built, you know, a lot of blue-collar work, and also had a violent tendency because of his zealot overtones. Of course he's got courage. No, 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 actually. Remember, back to the beginning. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. God used the ordinary, the unschooled, those people who were from the wrong side of the tracks and anointed them with the Holy Spirit. The courage came from heaven. Where's the Peter that denied Jesus three times? Where's the Peter that let fear win? Where's the Peter or actually all the disciples, including John, who ran away, who actually were more concerned about personal safety than courage? Gone. In other words, if you're a Christian, I know lots of you listening are, here's the simple truth. We don't need political power. We don't need uh, more profound education, though I'm all pro that. 
We need the power of God to share the good news. It's the Spirit of God and the gospel of God where the power resides. No, it was H.G. Wells that said the trouble with so many people is that the voice of their neighbor sounds louder in their ears than the voice of God. No truer statement has been stated than that, especially for Christians right now living in the West and in Canada. John Knox, the great uh, reformer in Scotland that the Presbyterian movement came out of, once said about him, he feared God so much he never feared the face of any man. And I love what Roy Clements said years ago when he said, you know, testimony is telling people what Jesus has done in my personal experience. Evangelism is telling people what Jesus has done for the, uh, for the world in history. In other words, we as the church, you as a Christian, we are supposed to give testimony and we are called to witness. We have to do both. But we will never be able to witness or give testimony in our own natural ability. The takeaway actually for many of us this week is to actually ask the Holy Spirit for courage to speak the good news of Jesus and to find that source in a place that is not us. Second of all, I know it's Thanksgiving, uh, and, uh, uh, and there's lots of good stuff in this passage about Thanksgiving, but if I can say, this brings up, again, the conversation about suffering and the good news. Every time God moves, the devil moves. Every time God moves, the human heart moves. This is not the exception. This is actually the norm for followers of Jesus. I shared this a few weeks ago. I want to take a moment just, I want you to hear the words of Jesus. I want you to hear the words of Peter. I want you to hear the words of Paul. Jesus said in John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. This is what uh, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some, all. Uh, one of the most profound statements about this is found in 1 Peter 2.21. To this you were called. Oh, hold on. You were called into this. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Now, I've worked through this again and again in our church. Let me do it one more time. Forgive the repeat. Uh, persecution needs to be viewed as a sliding scale. It's not either North Korea being executed for Jesus and in a house church afraid for your life or nothing. It's actually pretty diverse. And Open Doors has outlined, in my opinion, suffering in the best way. When they said persecution is any hostility experienced as a result of one's identification with Jesus. This includes hostile attitudes, words, and actions towards Christians. So I said this two weeks ago. Let me do it again. When you declare Jesus is the only way to heaven, like Peter does here. When you say God is creator and has the final say in sexuality and gender. When you choose not to lie or cheat and your boss wants you to do that. And because of that, you actually lose access to a job or a promotion. That is persecution on a small scale. Like I shared two weeks ago, this does not apply to your politics. This does not apply if you're a jerk. <laughs> this does not apply if you break the law, like cheating on tax. It doesn't apply. But when you declare there is an eternal life and a heaven and a hell, when you declare that it doesn't matter how sincere you are, it doesn't matter how good you are, you need someone to save you. 
When you stand up in the name of Jesus for the life of the unborn and the life of the elderly, when you say in our culture, actually no, from God's view, medically assisted suicide is murder, and you stand up for widows and orphans and immigrants in Jesus' name, you will be persecuted. And I've said this again and again and again, I'm going to keep saying it as orthodox, confessional, historic, biblically informed Christians, all the time we will be attacked by the right politically and the left because we belong to another kingdom and our customs are different. We're pro-life and pro-immigrant in Jesus' name. We boldly declare Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. He's the Son of God. He's the only way to heaven. Yet we will defend the civic right for anyone to believe or say anything they want. God calls us very clearly to a holy sexual life. He actually has the final say about that, and we must conform as Christians to that. And at the same time while we do that, we resist any form of violence against anyone of any sexual orientation. Now, most of us will not have our churches burned, we probably will not be beaten uh, or, or jailed. But in this Canadian moment, at least, we, our culture has moved more and more, especially in urban environments, from you know the Starbucks, what drink do you want? We're good with whatever you like, if it's good for you. Sort of now to hostility, where our culture is now saying, well, Scripture and the claims of Jesus and the claims of the Christian faith are almost anti-Canadian. No matter. Not if, but when this happens to you by a boss or a friend or a family member or online, don't hate the person. Pray for your enemies and rejoice because you get to participate in the sufferings of Jesus. I mean, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said in Matthew 5, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely, they lie about you. They say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All of us, and I know lots of people are going to hear the sermon and just move on. But if a few of you would actually take the time this week to pray for the Spirit of God to give you courage in witnessing and giving testimony, it might change the world. All of us, this is just about setting expectations. It's not trying to gear us up to always be attacked or always being... It's just, it's expectation setting. So many people walk away from the Christian faith because they were taught you it would be easy. And then when difficulty comes, they walk away. And the truth is, just like the early apostles in the early church, we will be tested for our faith, and we have to boldly proclaim who Jesus is, but do it kindly and truthfully and gracefully. Some of you watching this right now, again, you have never embraced Jesus. Um, you're almost like the members of the Sanhedrin. <laughs> and again, like I always say, you could be really spiritual and you've committed your life to self-visualization uh, and self-direction. You might be profoundly religious, part of another faith, a Muslim. Maybe you are Jewish. Maybe you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or, or a Sikh or a Zoroastrian. Uh, maybe you're an agnostic or you believe militantly in science or maybe you're an atheist or maybe you don't really care what you are. You're about being self-made and it's about image and sex and money and power and education. Here's God's moment again for you, where God's, God's love for you is being expressed to you. This is what God says to you. <laughs> Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to humanity by, we, by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only one who's dealt with sin because he's the only one who's without sin. Think about that. He's the only one without sin. He's pure. He's perfect. He's never made a mistake. He's the only one that actually has overcome death. He's the only one who's come back from the other side and tells us what's there. 
He's the only one that has the power and ability and holiness and love to deal with our rescue. He's the only one that's overcome all of our enemies and has the power to actually break our selfish inclinations. The invitation is for you to believe the good news about Jesus. And what's even more amazing is, if that's not enough, He doesn't even make us earn our rescue. The good news is this, God didn't leave us in our brokenness. God didn't walk away even though He had the right to. We walked away, we rebelled, not Him. The good news is God came back for us and lives a life we could not live, dies the death we deserve, rises from the dead, and allows us to come back home. I I love what Paul once said when he said in Ephesians 2, it's by grace you get saved through faith. It's not from yourself, it's always a gift of God. It's not by works, no one gets to be prideful, no one gets to brag, right? No one gets to boast. You get rescued by Jesus, in Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus. Grace alone, faith alone, uh, trust alone through the person and work of Jesus alone. And if you have just never embraced Him on this Thanksgiving weekend, of all weekends, you can move from the Sanhedrin to the man who's running around. Just say, Lord, just say, I confess. <laughs> You're Lord. Repent. I'm guilty. I put my faith in Jesus. Come save me. And He will. He will. One last thing. You know, I know a lot of um, churches would preach this as history, and the guy got healed, and isn't that great, and that's what happened back then. Other churches maybe that you've come from would preach this message, and they'd be like, that man got healed, and so, you know, if you're sick, we're all going to pray for healing, and everyone's going to get healed today. And the truth is, our church sits in the tension in the middle where we know in the end God will ultimately heal, of course, through the resurrection, and all of us will be set free like this man, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, sexually, all of it will be healed. Um, So I wrestled over the last two weeks, thinking and praying about this, asking the Holy Spirit if He wanted to do anything, realizing He's in charge. And my sense, interestingly, was the answer was yes. And so I'm not standing up declaring anything with, like, bold certainty, but I just want to say that um, if you're online today uh, or if you are at a physical site or even if you're watching this later and you are in need of real healing, I mean legit healing. You're this guy. You are broken. You're, you're sick. And that could be physically, mentally, etc. Relationally, I'm just going to ask you after this message ends to reach out to a pastor or a prayer person and formally request that in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, you would get healed. And I'm just intrigued to see what the Lord's going to do because we don't do this all the time, but my sense is He does want to do it. So let's just end like this. Number one, thanks, uh, Jesus, using Peter and John to heal this man. Thank you, Jesus, that Peter and John suffered uh, for the gospel uh, and gave us this example. Uh, A few things for us. Number one, Holy Spirit, give our church courage to witness and also testify. And number two, Lord Jesus, uh, help us to suffer well and suffer right and not be shocked. Redeem our suffering, we pray. Number three, for those among us who do not know Jesus, open their eyes, their ears, and their hearts and bring them to eternal life. And lastly, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit. And would you do what you need to do and what you want to do in the area of healing? Uh, We ask in the powerful name of Jesus for something to take place under your will in Jesus' name. And we all said, uh, amen. Thank you so much for listening. 
If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. And last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit the follow button to be notified when another episode releases. Well, that's it for today, and may God bless you so, so much.